Welcome to UAB MedCast, a continuing education podcast for medical professionals, providing knowledge that is moving medicine forward. Here's Melanie Cole. Welcome to UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole. We have a panel for you today with Dr. James Calloway. He's an assistant professor in gastroenterology. And Dr. Kristen Wong, she's an assistant professor and general surgeon. They're both at UAB Medicine, and they're here to highlight gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, for us. Doctors, thank you so much for joining us. I would like to start with Dr. Calloway. Can you please tell us the scope of the situation that we're talking about today, the impact on the daily health of individuals, really the scope of the issue of GERD and the prevalence? Sure. Thanks so much for having us today. Gastroesophageal reflux is a quite prevalent condition. It affects almost all of us to some degree over our lifetime. We may have some troublesome heartburn symptoms. Reflux disease is primarily defined as either pyrosis or heartburn, kind of the burning sensation in our chest, or regurgitation, where you may actually feel food contents or acid kind of going up into the chest and potentially into the back of the throat. But those symptoms may occur after routine meals, but it being a troublesome symptom and becoming a prevalent, happening you know more than a few times per week, is, is considered pathologic and, and quite troublesome. And that's what many patients are referred to our GI clinics or our surgical colleagues for when symptoms are prevalent or they're not responding to typical medical therapy. And the prevalence, though, is actually it's quite prevalent. Up to 40% of Americans will have troublesome heartburn symptoms at some time during their life. And at any given time, about 20% of patients actually are on heartburn medications, either over-the-counter or prescription medications at some point during their adult life. Dr. Calloway, do we know why? Why is it becoming more and more prevalent? Is it because we're seeing this obesity epidemic? Is it our food choices? Is it sedentary lifestyle? All of those things. Why are you seeing an increase? I do think obesity is the the number one risk factor that we are running into and that it's becoming increasingly prevalent over the last 20 to 30 years. And that's probably the biggest risk factor that continues to push the GERD needle forward. We are becoming more astute at diagnosing it. And also, our, you know, many of the reflux medications are becoming over-the-counter at this point. And so patients are self-treating as well. So I think the actual prevalence is probably under under-recognized as patients try to treat their reflux symptoms at home without actually seeking medical professionals too. So Dr. Wong, don't worry, I'm not forgetting about you, but Dr. Calloway, sticking with you for just a minute, as we speak about diagnoses, tell us a little bit about how how you come to a definitive diagnosis of GERD. If you're doing endoscopy, do you feel that this is something that, that people should be screened for, like colonoscopy? Is it something that you see happening in the future? Speak just a little bit about diagnoses and, and all of the different things and available tools that we have today. Sure. Great question. You know, reflux disease is, as we mentioned, common, and it is actually difficult to define in some ways. We know, you know just by definition, it's refluxing of gastric contents into the esophagus. That can just be clinical symptoms, as I mentioned, there's some heartburn that someone may happen, happen to have after a meal, but eventually it may become pathologic. And in that situation, it can cause troublesome symptoms that actually cause changes in someone's quality of life. It can cause damage to the esophagus and the setting of inflammation or what we call erosive esophagitis. And it can lead to further types of problems as well, like Barrett's esophagus or even potentially esophageal adenocarcinoma. So it's a diagnosis that we don't want to miss because if left untreated, it could have potential long-term implications, including something as dreaded as, as cancer. To diagnose this, though, 
primarily it's it's done either by clinical history where we talk to our patients about their symptoms and we may actually even use medications as an empiric trial to see if their symptoms do respond. Many times that's actually how the reflux diagnosis is made. In gastroenterology or if you're seeing a gastroenterologist, we are much more apt to actually perform objective testing. We may use an endoscopy, as you mentioned, which is a flexible camera scope to go down into the esophagus and look for damage from reflux disease. Or we may use things like ambulatory pH testing, which is a where we can objectively quantify how much reflux a patient is having. Whether they're having five episodes a day or 500 episodes a day, we have different mechanisms where we can actually quantify that amount of reflux and then prognosticate someone on how frequently their symptoms may occur or maybe best treatment options based on how much reflux that they are actually having. You mentioned earlier Dr. Callaway medications and people are self-medicating at home. I'd like you to speak about the medications that are available now, whether over the counter or by prescription. And there have been so many studies that have come out raising concern for medications that are used to treat GERD, but these studies really only have demonstrated an association, not this cause and effect relationship. So I'd like you to speak about that just a little bit as you're telling us about what you would try as your first line defense. Sure, absolutely. Well, we do encourage lifestyle modifications for patients with minimal symptoms of reflux disease or intermittent symptoms of reflux disease. That includes weight loss for those that are obese or overweight, potentially avoiding the times of day that they're actually eating, trying to avoid late night meals and things of that nature. When it comes to medical therapy, proton pump inhibitors have been around for over 30 years now, and those are the most effective medical treatment for reflux disease. There are other types of medications out there, including histamine receptor blockers, which also have been used for short-term relief of of heartburn and GERD symptoms. Those are typically used for kind of short durations, typically are not used chronically, but either proton pump inhibitor inhibitors or H2 receptor antagonists are our would be our primary medical treatments. You mentioned about the potential association with adverse conditions. And there have been numerous studies, especially in the last 10 years, which have identified associations with long-term use of PPIs and the development of, of these types of conditions. Most of those studies have numerous flaws, as you mentioned, and are not really considered definitive. And they really haven't established a true kind of cause and effect relationship between PPIs and those adverse conditions. High quality studies have not found that PPIs significantly increase the risk of many of the things that have been reported, including uh, stomach cancer, osteoporosis related bone fractures, chronic kidney disease. We do think that there is an increased risk of intestinal infections, but that being said, we do think that PPIs are still the, the benefits of them really outweigh the the risk, the theoretical risks of the associations that many of these epidemiologic studies have brought up over the last 10 years. So in general, we still think PPIs are safe, but we do want to use the lowest effective dose in all of our patients that we are treating. And if symptoms are not responding appropriately, we should investigate that, or we should definitely engage our surgical colleagues to, to think about other potential treatment options that do not include medicines. Kristen, we'll get you involved this shortly. <laughs> okay, no, I can listen to you. Go on, keep going. <laughs> All the medical side so far. Yeah, no, that's fine with me. <laughs> Dr. Wong, we did not forget about you. So as Dr. Calloway just alluded to for GERD that's refractory to medications, please discuss some of the surgical indications and treatment options that are available today. Sure. Thank you for having me. I could listen to Dr. Calloway talk all day, so, you know. But, yeah, so there's a couple of traditional treatments, surgical treatments for reflux, and there's a couple of non-traditional treatments for reflux that are 
kind of this new techniques that we are just now developing. So the first tried and true technique for people that have either failed, you know, maximized their medical therapy, those are the people that are on two PPIs already, they're taking Tums as needed, so they're really just unhappy and their symptoms aren't well controlled, or the people that don't want to take their PPIs because of these reported side effects. So those are the people that we bring in and we talk to, and the first thing that we would discuss with them is probably the tried and true surgery approach, which is a, a gastric fundiplication. So that is, you know, started in the 1950s, and it's basically a wrap, and it has initial success rates of greater than 90% at high-volume centers. And the idea behind the wrap is that it kind of recreates the pressure of the lower esophageal sphincter and prevents that reflux from, you know, coming back up from the stomach into the esophagus. Fund applications, I think they get a bad rep because I think in the surgical community, there's a highly variable techniques. And so you have a lot of results and the different kinds of results and the range of outcomes are, are very different amongst surgeons. Overall, I think it's a technically difficult. It does require an overnight or inpatient stay. But, you know, the good news is that over 90% of patients that undergo an anti-reflux surgery, i.e. a fund application, do see symptom improvement and get off of their medications. What are the downsides of a fund application? There are a couple different poor, you know, bad outcomes that we want to look for. The biggest things that I think a lot of people who refer to their surgeons are worried about are gas bloat syndrome and dysphagia. So that, those range in the 20% of people postoperatively after a fund application. And we can go into the different types of fund applications as well. The Nissen is the probably the most well-known fund application, and that's a 360-degree wrap. So when we go in, we, we usually do these all laparoscopically nowadays, and we wrap the stomach 360 degrees around the GE junction. That's compared to several other options we have called partial wraps, which is a toupee fund application or a door fund application. And those those are generally either a posterior or an anterior wrap, approximately 180 to 270 degrees, so a little bit of a gentler wrap. And so when people come in and they want to, we want to talk about fund applications, there's a lot of different variables that go into how we decide which wrap someone will get. And I will state that generally, most foregut surgeons across the country have moved away from the classic 360-degree Nissen fund application because between the Nissen and the toupee, actually, they've had similar rates of, you know, getting people off their PPIs, similar rates of symptom improvement, but the toupee is actually known to be a gentler wrap and therefore has less dysphagia and gas bloat syndrome. So a lot of surgeons are now moving just to offering people the toupee and consider the Nissen full 360 degree wrap a thing of the past. The next thing we might consider for patients is the Lynx device or the magnetic sphincter augmentation device. And this is something that developed in the early 2000s and we have at least 10 year data on this now. It's a device made up of interconnected magnets, each of which is encased in a titanium bead forming a ring, sort of like a bracelet and we place these circumferentially around the esophagus near the gastroesophageal junction. And so the idea is at rest, the magnetic force will hold the beads close together to prevent reflux from occurring, and they can separate in response to a food bolus. And so it, it does allow normal physiologic function, and it does have very good results. So they've done a couple of trials comparing the links to the fund application device, and it's been shown to be equivalent in terms of symptom relief and getting patients off their PPIs. Now, there are a couple of 
relative contraindications and one absolute contraindication to placing the links. The relative contraindications would be an existing esophageal motility disorder, things like the presence of another electrical implant or a patient that might require MRIs in the future greater than 1.5 teslas. And the only absolute contraindication to a Lynx device is an allergy to titanium or nickel, which is what the device is made of. So, you know, the Lynx is a good option. And I think for patients who have typical reflux symptoms, who don't have a really large hiatal hernia and don't meet any of those other, other relative contraindications, I would absolutely offer a Lynx to those patients. It's, it's you know, the, the literature's out there. And again, but I do make the caveat that we only have 10 years worth of data on the Lynx versus the fund application, which we've has been around for 70 years. Isn't it fascinating for both of you in your field? What an exciting time. And before we get ready to wrap up, and again, thank you, Dr. Wong, for that comprehensive overview of the procedures that are available. I'd like to give you each a chance for a final thought as you're speaking to other providers and the importance of this multidisciplinary approach and this combined clinic where you represent different specialties but work so very well well together. Dr. Wong, starting with you, I'd like you to speak to other providers and what you would like them to know when they're referring their patients, getting getting to that next step where surgery might be indicated. When would you like them to do that? When is it important to refer? Sure. I think that if you have patients that are unhappy with their current medical therapy, Either they don't want to take, you know, PPIs any longer or they still have symptoms despite being on maximal medication therapy. I think that's when you need to definitely refer to the surgery side of of the team. And, you know, again, like I said, we have several good options and more options, you know, are coming down the pipeline with more technology being introduced uh, for reflux. And Dr. Calloway, last word to you as you're speaking to primary care providers and even patients that listen to these, what would you like them to know as they counsel their patients on those lifestyle behaviors and those conservative measures that we try before we get into the PPIs and the and the medicational intervention and onward? What would you like them to know as they are counseling their patients on the increasing prevalence of GERD in the community? Absolutely. I really would encourage weight loss as the initial treatment for many patients that have not only reflux, but other types of metabolic conditions that that we know obesity contributes to and and can have long-term poor outcomes with. So that is always the first thing that we will recommend. If patients are having persistent symptoms on PPIs, the first thing I do like to make sure is make sure that we are dealing with classic reflux disease. Our most recent guidelines have really stressed the importance of really objectifying reflux and actually quantifying it earlier in the treatment. So patients are not on long-term PPIs for many, many years treating some type of reflux symptoms, which may or may not actually be reflux disease. So I would like to engage either the surgeons or the gastroenterologists early on if we are unclear about exactly what's going on so we can help define, is this persistent reflux, is this refractory GERD, and then we can really help try to figure out what's the best therapy for them, whether it's additional medical treatment, whether it's adjunctive medical treatment, whether it's lifestyle changes, or whether or not we really should engage our surgeons because there are certain types of symptoms, especially regurgitation, that PPIs are just not very good at treating, and engaging our surgical colleagues can be really life-altering for our patients to try to help with that symptom in particular, but reflux in general. Thank you both so much for joining us and sharing your incredible expertise with this very prevalent condition. So thank you again. And a physician 
can refer a patient to UAB Medicine by calling the MIST line at 1-800-UAB-MIST or by visiting our website at uabmedicine.org physician. That concludes this episode of UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole.